up. Recording. Okay, I think we're good. First of all, I'm going to start by asking you questions. Oh crap! Okay. Have you finished the game? Have you played it yet? Are you are you are you done with it? Did you complete it? Are you? Wait, have you played it? I hope you play it till the end and let us know. You, you've played you've played the whole game. I finished it last night at like two a.m. Oh, you did. Uh, so I probably should have left that. Um, I clocked a little under thirty, I think, when all was said and told. Yeah. And what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, this is just where it just sounds like a, a fanboy. It's incredible. But overall, overall, you liked it. That's an understatement, my friend. Okay, that's it, good. It, it, it was incredible. Absolutely. I, I can't believe it was a PlayStation 4 game. Like, I don't know what you all did. Every moment I was like, well, this is a beautiful game. And then I get to a new set piece in a new area and I'd be like, this is a beautiful game. Like, I couldn't. <laughs> the amount of times I played around in photo mode too before realizing I should let a professional do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome back to the official The Last of Us podcast. I'm Christian Spicer. Up until this point, we've been covering the story of the first game with the people who made it. But now we're moving on to the second game. And these next few episodes are going to be a bit different. Instead of the beat-by-beat conversations we had for part one, in these next four episodes, we'll be doing a larger overview of the making of and really hone in on our two main protagonists, Ellie and Abby. You're still going to get insight from Neil, Ashley, and Troy, but you're also going to get to hear from part two co-writer Hallie Gross, the voice of Abby, Laura Bailey, and many other people behind this new installment of The Last of Us. The game's been out for a few weeks now, so we've all had a chance to play it, but please know there are going to be spoilers in these discussions. Proceed at your own risk. When did you know that you were going to make a part two? Yeah, there's, um, there isn't like this one moment necessarily. Like as we're making the first game, where we haven't even finished the first game, you start like really understanding these characters and who they are and what makes them tick. And you can't help but think about their lives outside of that story, whether it's before or after. And like in my mind, Joel's arc was pretty much done. I didn't know where else to take that character. But with Ellie, there was, it felt at least at the time, like it's, it's going to be ripe for all these other stories. And then we finished production. Um, we were, we already had like an outline for Left Behind. Um, that I, f- I finished that outline before we finished actually The Last of Us Part 1. So I knew exactly when this finishes, here's the, what the, this DLC is going to be. But at the same time, I started thinking about ideas for the next game. And a lot of them were very plot driven. Like it was like, okay, what's a cool situation to put Ellie in? And it was like, oh, what if she heard someone else was immune and she's going to go on this journey to find this other person that's immune? And, um, and none of them like... It felt like interesting, again, from a plot standpoint, interesting twists and turns, and you can do a lot of fan service. Joel's going to chase her, and now they're going to be teamed up together, and the lie is going to come into play because of what she's after. But it felt like it, it was missing the thing that I think was successful in the first game, which is this emotional heart, this like very simple universal concept of love. Can we make you feel the unconditional love a parent feels for their child? And I was like, without that, I felt like it, it's just, it could be an exciting story, 
but it won't capture that emotional resonance that the first game had. And then kind of left it for a while and then came back to it with this concept of of hate, of this, again, this very universal feeling that we all people experience, which is just deep hate where you're willing, in your mind, you're willing to commit horrible acts of violence against another human being. Like I lived in a civilized society, you know, I'm, I, I considered myself to be a pretty easygoing guy and my mind was easily able to go there from people I don't even know. Now, what would happen if something like that happened to someone I love? How far would my mind kind of go down this downward spiral? And is there coming back from that? And all these interesting philosophical questions started bubbling up and it felt like, again, this universal emotional truth. And I was like, this is it. This is that, that core I've been searching for and haven't been able to find. And once I had that, everything fell into place. And I mean, like within like a couple of weeks, I had the rough outline that is pretty close to what the final game ended up being. So by the time I was talking to Ashley Johnson and telling her the story of Left Behind, we met up in a restaurant and I was like, okay, that we got that story. And she was like asking all these questions. She was really intrigued by it. And then I was like, okay, I have this other story for you. Like, it's really rough. And I walked her through that story. And like, by the end, she's like crying and people are looking at us all weird in this restaurant. <laughs> um, but it she felt like- She throws her water on your face and walks out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the first validation that there was like seeing her reaction. Um, that was a validation that there was something there to keep developing. There was a- part of me that was go thinking going in, maybe call me cynical as well. Just like, I'm sure this will be great, but mm -hmm. you know, like it can't, it can't live up to it. It, it. There's no way. And then as it, the chapters or, you know, the moments clicked away, it's just, it's, it's stunning. And, and the best way I can compare it, and I don't mean this to sound um, just full of hyperbole, but it's, it's kind of like, I have two kids. I love them both completely. I don't have a favorite. Like mm -hmm. they, they both bring something new to the table. And I think for me, the magic of the story of, of part two is that it does, it brings something new to the table. It's not the expected sequel. It's not um, safe. It's, it's challenging. I found myself not liking what was happening. Mm -hmm. I found myself questioning why these characters are in these situations and what I would do if I were them. And and I found myself needing to put the controller down and walk away only two moments later, be like, I, okay, I gotta, <laughs> I, gotta I, I gotta get back to this. I gotta see. Um, and I think what struck for me was that it is through this generation now that this is the world they know. Mm -hmm. This violence, this perpetual fear, the old world never existed for them. While in part one, with Joel as the main protagonist, I kept seeing the world through what was lost. And now there's this whole group of young adults who never knew that and seeing their world and, and their life was, was very powerful for me. What's up with all these posters? It's a bunch of comics. Wait, what was happening here? A gathering for people who were really into this stuff. Like you, basically. We were born in the wrong time, man. First of all, thank you. Those are very nice thoughts. Your analogy to having two kids is great. I wish I had that at the beginning of production to describe it to the team. Um, I don't know if there was ever a conscious decision actually to say, okay, now we're just gonna view the world 
through people that have never experienced our world. It just kind of happened. Um, the reason also we went with like late teens, early 20s, it's like people in that age feel invincible um, and they feel righteous and they feel like they understand how the world works. And it was, it's, it's a, you know, it's a maturation plot, like, like Ellie and Abby and all these people evolve through these horrible acts. My name is Hallie Gross, and I am the co-writer and narrative lead on The Last of Us Part Two. So I got hired to be a writer on the game with Neil, and I was brought in super early to help him break the story, outline it, figure out scenes and characters and the whole shebang. And then I ended up getting the narrative lead title like two years into my role at Naughty Dog um, when I started to take on sort of larger responsibilities and basically being Neil's tiny loudmouthed shadow. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the collaboration process like? You mentioned it a little bit. So I think Neil and I have like very, very similar tastes. We agree, uh, I would say on like 80% of things. So a lot of it was trying to just plus each other and go, okay, we'd identify a problem to solve or, you know, uh, a narrative thing that we wanted to figure out in a day or in an hour or in a 10 minute stretch. And then we would just keep trying to find the best, most interesting version, something you haven't seen before or something that feels on theme or true to character. And there was very little ego about it. It was just whoever's idea we both thought was best, that would be the one that ended up on the card. And then, um, you know, when we opened that conversation up to more people in the studio, there was also the like, okay, we're going to try and sell you on this idea and pitch you on this idea. But a lot of great ideas came from designers and artists and it was very much about like opening the circle up progressively bringing in cooler ideas better ideas ideas that worked more with the fact that we were making a game not a movie or a tv show um you know mechanics that wanted to get involved uh scenes or settings that wanted to get explored and building it holistically so mostly, yeah, I think Neil and I started out relatively polite with each other. But by the end, you know, it's just us yelling at each other that the other one is stupid, but still going, OK, but that was a good idea. Fine, fine, <laughs> fine. <laughs> so what was that transition then like from traditional screenplay writing to game writing? And, and kind of what was that like for you? Well, there's um, a couple different facets to get into. But I'd say just on the writing front, initially, it was very, very similar. I have come up in rooms and breaking stuff collaboratively. So when I walked in, Neil had these big tentpole kind of ideas of the story, some of which have radically changed. And so my job was that connective tissue and helping him sort of find the vision that he wanted. So I just carted stuff up on a board. We started pitching ideas to each other, throwing things out, trying things on. And so all of that felt really similar to writing a 10-episode season of television. It started to get different when, you know, when we broke it out, we didn't think about gameplay versus cinematic beats or narrative beats. We just said, what's the story arc? And... Obviously, you have to keep in mind, like, okay, we've got to figure out how to have a lot of enemies that you kill, but we weren't thinking in terms of gameplay. So then uh, once he and I had shapes that we felt were, like, close, we would bring in some designers. My name is Kurt Marganow. I'm a co-game director on Last of Us Part Two. 
My name is Anthony Newman, and I am the co-game director on The Last of Us Part Two. I'm curious if we could step back a little bit, and if you could just talk a little bit about what, and maybe specifically at Naughty Dog, or more generally if you'd like, but what game directing is, and what that role is, and, and what you do in it. Yeah, that's definitely one that is going to be different for every studio. I guess on the highest level, the way that I would describe what a game director does is like to oversee and be like the final approval or overseer of like the gameplay of the game. And I guess specifically really helping and driving how the narrative is integrated into gameplay. Like I found my job at the end of the game or for most of the game really to just be, to exist for people to ask questions to. What was the biggest challenge that you remember that you faced in directing on Last of Us 2, aside trying to work with Anthony, which I hear is just, you know, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, that was a challenge, like finding those roles, you know, that, you know, having two people share that role, which is a first for Naughty Dog. Working with Kurt was really interesting. And Kurt kind of, I I call Kurt the godfather of script uh, because so many of our methodologies or our best practices, what we teach new scripters to do were things that he discovered via trial and error on Uncharted 2. Uh, and those kind of best practices have you know, lasted us these 10 some years. And it's, to me, I think one of the things that really makes Naughty Dog games stand out and like how we're able to handle player interactions gracefully and stuff. And that like Naughty Dog attention to detail that everybody talks about, so much of that comes from the fact that we have this very flexible scripting language. And if someone sees something that they don't like or want to improve upon, we can make those kind of atomic improvements. So much of that lineage, I think, comes from Kurt's work on Uncharted 2. And we kind of have this kinship of that early history together. I don't know how many hours I was into it, but at least a couple before I saw the run to jump to prone animation, where instead of going to crouch first, then prone. And I don't know if that literally saved my character's life a few times after I found it, but I loved it. I'd be booking it towards tall grass and I would just do that, that dive into prone. And it was so satisfying And like the little, this is where I'm just like a fanboy now for a little bit. The little touches, the moments of like, so I'm Ellie and I do that. And then I'm gonna draw out my bow. I, I don't want to give away this position I just kind of fought to find. And the way she then rolls over to pull it, like it, it feels very real. And even in those moments of, let's say, a gameplay mechanic change of I'm in this position of hiding to now I need to be armed for combat, it still felt like a moment that was how it would happen. And I'm curious how you all kind of balanced that or made those decisions to, you know, what is real? Breaking glass, I'm going to you know, use my elbow if I have it or the butt of my gun um, or roll over or reload is a different animation. And I'm reaching up to a drawer to get something is different than down. I'm glad you bring up the pickups system because that was like such a big push. It's kind of a tech that we had that we started experimenting with on uh, Uncharted 4, but we really embraced, which is like this uh, partial animation system. So like You can play an animation on the top half of the character, but not the bottom half. So the result of which is like, it just looks like I'm grabbing shit and putting in my backpack. And it looks realistic, like I would in the real world be able to pretty easily walk past something, pick it up while I'm moving and put it in my backpack. But something that is really hard in a video game to do. Another one is like the straps on the guns on Ellie. 
and Abby. So on Uncharted 4, we're like, well, let's have a strap on the gun so that it actually sits and rests and the strap goes across his body. And when he pulls the gun out, the strap hangs and dangles with physics. It's like, well, we did it for Uncharted 4, so why not? We'll bring that over into Last of Us. Well, now you did a manual rope recoil also. So if we ever go back to, to Nate throwing a rope, you know, I'm not going to, he's got to, he's got to wind it back up. Even if I throw it halfway through my rewind, you know, you keep setting the bar higher for yourself. <laughs> so you did notice that you could throw the rope before she's done coiling it. Cause a lot of people like they'll just politely wait for her to finish coiling the rope all the way. Oh no, I get myself into some situations. I don't have time to politely <laughs> wait. <laughs> Yeah, the rope stuff was was really cool and let us do some more traversal stuff and some interesting puzzles like throwing ropes over stuff. It was so great. Breaking the glass, throwing the rope through, just so fun. It just felt so good. The breaking glass was such a like big win for for us, like for how technically difficult it was into like how many different ways we like were able to integrate that with level design. And we just always had in the back pocket, like, well, that's a piece of glass, you could shatter it. Oh, when you shatter glass, it makes noise, so it can alert enemies. So we can create like really tense scenarios where the only way to get into a space is to shatter the glass. You're gonna have to make noise. You're gonna have to alert the enemies. That's again, that's one of those things that sounds so deceptively simple. You know, the big challenge about making a game like The Last of Us is to develop fresh and interesting game mechanics. But the uh, we have to kind of make do with things that are as realistic as possible. And breakable glass was just like the perfect one of those because suddenly you have all these puzzles where it's like oh what do i how can i use this breakable glass to like you know get around to a locked door or something like that you can put pickups behind breakable glass like uh and resources and the player has to hit the glass in order to get the resources behind them but hitting that glass makes a noise which could attract enemies so when an enemy takes cover uh, behind a pane of glass and they want to shoot at you, they'll take cover there and then they'll quickly stand up and break it with their elbow before they start aiming at you. So it's just like another way for different systems in the game to interact with each other. Um, and then when like a shambler explodes and you know, blows up all the glass or you know one of your bombs goes off and stuff, that was really something we looked for. And I think you know doors were another good example of that, of these ways that we could take something simple from the real world that has these uh, affordances that you understand right away, but nonetheless can create these very interesting moments. For me, day one, like on the, the first, I'm trying to remember just the first time I heard the idea of Joel is going to die early in the game and he's going to be killed by someone that was affected by what Joel had done. I think even originally, it wasn't even the doctor from the first game. It was just, it was like a little section of something between that 20 year gap and Last of Us 1, where like they're, Tommy and Joel were smugglers and they were doing fucked up shit and that they killed someone and then this person came back and that was going to be the playable like opening of the game was that thing where he kills them. And then it was you know, reworked and, and brought in like the actions of the first game becoming the impetus for the story of the second game was super, super compelling. And like taking that moment that everyone has, con like that was probably the most controversial part of the first game was the doctor scene and like killing the doctors, being forced to kill the doctor to kill the other two doctors. Um, this 
obviously the, the biggest choice, the biggest thing that Joel does in that game and making that the entire reason that the second game exists was like, once that connection was like made, it was like, oh, that's way cooler. But also like, this is kind of the inciting incident of the whole story the whole thing that kicks Abby on her journey. Uh, so it's important to see that. Abby. No! Abby, don't look. Dad! Dad! No! 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 Neil and others have described this as maybe Naughty Dog's most divisive. So you're not only coming into The Last of Us, this game that means so much to so many people, you're also putting them through the ringer on it. It's not the safe expected sequel if there was one. No, absolutely not. Um, you know, when Neil pitched me what he had four years ago, he had And Then We Kill Joel right out the gate. And that actually was what one of the things that really excited me about it. I was like, whoa, that's such a ballsy, brave turn. And then there's so much frontier to explore. There's no expectations at that point because, you know, everything, all your preconceived notions about the relationship between these two people is out the window. So to me, it was incredibly exciting. And but also, yeah, it's it's a huge vocal supportive community. You want to, you know, make something that moves them, but. I think Neil has always been really good and the studio's always really been good about saying, like, we're not trying to replicate the first game. And I think a, a safety net that I've always had is I'll just blame Neil. <laughs> I'll just blame Neil for anything people don't like. I'll just say, that was Neil. What do you want me to do? I, you know, I, I work for the man. What can I do? <laughs> I recall Hallie first coming on the project and um, my office has like a cork wall that I put index cards on. And I'm like, all right, here's the story. It says like, kill person, <laughs> players love, kill other person, players love. And that's just pinned up there. And I'm like, that's all I have. Now let's figure out the, uh, it's not too dissimilar from what I had. So I was like, I'm like, <laughs> here's the beginning. Um, here's this beat in the middle where we swap like um, who we play. Like we're going to head to this part of the country. I don't know what part. We're going to spend some time there. We're going to see the story from both perspective. And here's the end. I don't have anything else, so let's start figuring it out. So I remember that even back then, which is around when we finished Uncharted 4, that was what we knew and uh, knew that we had wanted to spend a relatively short time compared to the first game in this one area. And then which area to go to became a bigger conversation with art and design to say, okay, because we're going to spend so much time in this one city, potentially, it has to be... Uh, an Naughty Dog game has pacing is very important to us, and by pacing I mean it's it's varying up the kind of gameplay that you're doing. So it can't all be combat, it can't all be conversations, it can't all be cutscenes. It's about switching these things up. It's about switching up the art. Um, so we need a variety of looks, and we could use weather, we could use architecture, but we needed a city that was interesting, interesting from an aesthetic point of view, but also interesting from a design point of view. So what kind of shapes can this place afford us? And again, Seattle is interesting because it's very hilly. Um, you got all these slopes, which create for more interesting level design with a lot more verticality and shifts and changes. And then we can like, because it rains there, we could flood it. So Seattle became this very exciting place pretty early on in production. And I talked a little bit about this earlier when we talk about where 
the idea came from, which was when you started making a sequel, then now there's an, a, people think they know, I hate this term, franchise, what the franchise means. I feel like franchise should only be like a term used by marketing people. And you could say, okay, the first game was successful, so let's deconstruct it into these beats or this template, and that'll be the roadmap of how we capture that success again. But to me, that is a recipe for disaster. Meaning it's like, at best, you could come close because you will never replicate the freshness of that journey by just going on the same journey. You might like, you might get a beat that's like, oh, that's kind of like the giraffe beat or like that, oh, that's kind of like the David beat and I'm, I'm seeing the structure now. And so instead it was like very early on, we said, we're not gonna replicate the first game. Meaning even the pacing of the first game, I think the first game has more of a cinematic movie pacing to it, just the way it keeps ratcheting it up and keeps like getting more and more and more and more intense. With this game, I wanted to have more of like a good novel that you get lost in, that there's going to be moments of like rest where things don't have to keep ratcheting it up because we're going to have those moments as well. And that's what I had the idea of like the farm sequence very early on. I was like, I wanted to just have, what is it like to just live in this world without combat? Um, and how can we make you experience that on the stick? So knowing we have those moments, um, knowing that, for example, one of the parts from the first game that people talk about all the time is the opening. How like people have said, like, oh, that's one of the best video game opening ever. And I was like, okay, we're not going to try to replicate that. There's no way we're trying to like top that. We got to do something different. And it's very purposeful to have like the opening, you know, it's just you riding a horse with Joel and it's calm and it's just giving you a sense of the world. And it's Joel gifting Ellie this guitar. And we spend like a few minutes just him playing a song. Some folks call this thing here a guitar. Funny. Where like all your instincts of like telling these kind of action stories, like, no, you got to start with a bang. You got to, and it's like, no, let's fight that instinct. We're telling a different kind of story here. And let's throw up the logo after this moment of connection between these two characters. Because so much of the story is about this connection. Well... That didn't suck. <laughs> She's yours. No. No, 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 no. I don't know the first thing I about this. I promised that I'd teach you how to play. You did. So that kind of allowed us to play with pacing in a different way to say, okay, what... And that's where note cards, again, is so important because you, you can throw the whole game up on the wall and look at it and be like, okay, we have too much combat here. Let's shift things around. Oh, we have too many downbeats. Let's shift around. Oh, there's not enough space between these flashbacks. How can we create more space? And like so much of that work is pacing, is storytelling to say, is the story evolving in this area? Like, or do we just have a sequence that's cool, but it's not really doing anything for us, for the characters, and we should really consider cutting it? No, 100%. I mean, it felt like I had these moments where I was just the character and one of the notes I wrote down because I couldn't talk to anybody about this um, <laughs> was this game it's one of the rare games where I wasn't running when I didn't need to so many games and games I love I'm holding down the run button you know because I'm just I'm going through it and 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 my play of part two, I, I rarely, if ever, did that. I think the time I can remember running, but not because I was impatient or trying to get to the next beat, I felt like that's what the character would have done. 
is when uh, Ellie came back to the farm with the rabbit and I see the horse out front and Tommy's horse. I, I ran with the character then because I, she, I felt would be interested in like, well, what's happening? We don't get visitors that often. What is this moment? But for the most part, I was in the world taking in these moments of exploration and wonder and, and experiencing these things. I'm Alexandria Naonike. I was, when we talked before on part one, I was primarily UI. On part two, I was character concept artist. Let's start there, because th- uh, in terms of character concept art and and what it entailed for this game, um, the characters are all grounded and real and different. And um, whether it's Ellie's physique versus Abby's versus Dina's versus Owen compared to Manny, like they all f- are all people. So I'd love to kind of talk to you about your process for character design in a game where many of the characters we've seen before, um, they've aged, but then also bringing in new characters into the world and kind of what that process is like. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're really narrative driven and because of that super character driven, like they're very character centric games. So it does, it is different, I guess, from quite a lot of other games that don't tend to put such a heavy, heavy emphasis. And I think that shows in like the detail on the characters and like the thought that went into it. Um, My lead on this project was Ashley Swadowski. She's the character lead at Naughty Dog on Last of Us 2. Um, And she really had like this very clear vision right from the very beginning, working with John Sweeney, the art director of like kind of how he wanted these characters to, to move through the story and to be influenced by the story. Everything from their costuming, like the colors of their costuming, the patterns that were on certain shirts, down to like how much blood they collect <laughs> over the span of like the time spent in Seattle, for instance, with Ellie. Like we, we would go into super specific detail on like, she got this cut at this time to prevent it from being too distracting, we're gonna heal it this much. And like, I would do like individual like concepts all the way through of degrees of damage she's taken and like what happened to her clothing after that fight. So it was very, we were like involved from the very beginning all the way to the very end in detailing all of this out and um, really trying to make them feel as real as possible. You know, the blood, the blood actually like interacts with rain, which had nothing to do with uh, characters as much as to do with VFX, so, like something like that, like that level of detail, the amount of tech and like the amount of people that have to go into building a system like that is astronomical. Do you have uh, a favorite moment and, and and maybe a favorite moment in the game and then also maybe a favorite moment you worked on seeing it realized in game? Yeah, so my favorite one I worked on is pretty easy. It's the museum um, with Joel. I love natural history. And so I like, um, apart from doing character, I'll also do like kind of narrative heavy spaces. I'll help set dress them. Um, so you put hats on dinosaurs is what you're telling that me. Was a, that was a designer who came up with that uh, <laughs> that idea, but I, that was awesome. Obviously, again, team effort with everything. But I chose all the dinosaurs and like where they were in the rooms and I like went with outsourcing to count all the vertebrae and make sure that they were all accurate and all that. And just picking like the different spaces in the museum, which is a type of space that I really love to be in. And that's that moment that I feel like fans of the first game 
they really crave so that when they get to it, it had to be very soft, but still amazing to look at and exciting and like full of stuff that people want to explore because that's your like tender moment with him that, I mean, I know I even crave by the time you get to it, it's like, yes, we got some, we got some <gasps> Papa Joel time. Did you know this was here? Oh, you don't like it. Um, we can head back. <laughs> oh, shut up. Yeah, it's like a nice soft moment. And I think we don't have very many of those in this game, but when they're there, I feel like they're much more impactful for it. Um, I also just love all the fooling around with Dina, like all the joking around with her when Ellie plays that song for her, the Take On Me song. I really, I liked that one a lot. What was that? Nothing. <laughs> hmm. Well, nothing sure sounds nice. This game's massive. I believe it's two discs if you get it physical. Um, it's like 30 hours or something. It, it is massive. So I'm curious, was it massive for you as well in terms of the art asks and the undertaking? Or is it every game is, you know, 10,000 hours of art, even if the game's only five hours long? No, this was huge. This game was so big for <laughs> all of us and felt very overwhelming. And I, to talk a little bit about some of the struggles people had, it's one of the things that I heard a lot is so many concerns, it was just too long. Like we had too much to do and it didn't feel like we were gonna be able to hit the mark and get the quality that we wanted um, at different points in the project where it was like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. Like I forget, Ashley told me how many costume changes Ellie has. I think it's like, it's a number that's, wild it was like 15 or something like that through the whole thing because like anything you change like when you put the little jacket on her uh, in seattle when it rains where she like puts her hood up which is a detail that i really, yeah. really love i love that they got that in um it's so but good. that's a co that's a whole costume change like there's not just a whole lot of characters they all have different costumes they all have hair sets like unique to them like they all like a few different types of hairs. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but Dina in festivals hair looks different than Dina like out on patrol with Ellie, not on patrol, but um, when she goes to Seattle with Ellie, that's a completely different thing. Abby's got wet hair or they all have wet hair versus dry hair um, for when it rains, when they get in the water, all that stuff. So the it's just like, as I sit here and talk about it, I'm sweating. I mean, it's really hot here today. It's like 90, but I'm just like, I'm just sweating thinking of like, wow, that was so much work. And it, for us, like at this time, it only just kind of like we're in the ramp down now from it being fully final. Um, and we're in that stage of it where it's just like, you kind of sit back and you're like, oh my God, we like, how did we do that? Like, <laughs> because other people be like, how did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like... <laughs> I'm curious if, and whether it's personal experience or I was on the team, kind of talking about how Abby and Ellie are both similar and how they're both different. These are two women that are kind of about the same age bracket, um, similar experiences to some extent. We're experiencing this great loss and being born post outbreak, and and this is the world they know, um, and kind of the design of those characters to have them feel like different characters and not a palette-swapped Ellie, for example, or something like that. Yeah, it hurts my guts a little bit with that because I feel like when you're playing through, it's like, I think they'd be friends. Like, I think in a different world, 
they would really like each other or maybe be a little bit competitive with each other or have, I could see them liking each other if the situation was different. Like they both have very similar values. Abby said to her dad, like, if it was me, I'd want you to sacrifice me. And that's very Ellie. Like they seem to be so similar. Obviously, Abby's a lot bigger than Ellie. There's like the physical difference between them, um, which kind of harkens a little bit to like the Joel versus Ellie from the first one. Like Ellie's a bit more nimble and like slight and Abby's like, like hits like a tank. Um, So there's obviously some gameplay differences with them. But I think personality wise, I felt like the writing team did a good job of showing that they're both like really stubborn, really driven, really passionate people. Um, And it's like true that sometimes when you come up against like a person just like you, like they're the hardest ones to deal with. Um, So yeah, I feel like visually we kept them obviously very separate, but I felt like their personalities were quite similar. And while Ellie went to a very dark place, um, Abby was able to kind of pull herself a little bit out of that earlier and sort of like maybe jolt Ellie in that direction as well. Like they both kind of went into these ups and downs of lightness and darkness throughout the that end set there. You've written some very nuanced, deep characters who are not afraid to be violent, women who are not afraid to be violent, which, you know, even today, I would say five years ago, 10 years ago, very different in terms of how we accepted that as a society. And and now we're seeing more of it, not enough, but more of it. Um, But I'm curious what that's like for you as a creator to write these characters that aren't afraid to let an ax fly. You know, I love writing violent characters. (laughs) I am... I started out, well, I started out writing comedy, but I got into film and television professionally on writing action. Um, I think there's something incredibly interesting to how base it is, how it is um, this language for people who maybe don't know how to use their words. You know, it's like, it's this it is a language for people who have not necessarily been able to develop super mature ways of communicating in the world and, and addressing their feelings. And I think we, we're all guilty of like, you know, I, I, the amount of iPhones I threw in my 20s into walls, <laughs> you know, is, is really real because I didn't know how to self-soothe or whatever. Um, I love examining violence because I think it is the epitome of survival, and like the desperation of survival and and this feeling of of such disenfranchisement like if someone's throwing a punch or throwing an axe uh, cuz they probably fucking need to and if they don't that's also a really interesting conversation as well um i like that heightened world i like talking about trauma and survival and resiliency and and a a world in which the violence is more on the surface makes those conversations, I think, clearer for people, a little um, much easier to understand when you're speaking on a grand scale where it's like, oh, I mean, they have to, you know, we, we kill outsiders because they're scary. It's like, okay, but then you can, you're, when you're speaking in those hyper, hyperbolic terms, I don't have to sit there and spend a half an hour giving you the nuance of the struggles with the WLF. It's like, no, 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 this is a nice way that feels black and white. And I think I think women especially women who've grown up in violent worlds, like can be or can have just as violent impulses as, as men and can be traumatized by that violence. 
it is universal <laughs> in a way. I love badass women. My name is Almudena Soria, and I'm co-lead animator at Naughty Dog. This time around, uh, I'm now a co-lead, uh, so my time is more spent on the supervisory type of things. So we, we redid all the locomotion uh, system, and we based it on motion matching, uh, which is a, a, a technique that was used before, but we made it our own. So we took all those concepts and uh, we developed our own system that is actually very, very complex and only a few people at the studio understand. Uh, so that was a massive challenge. Um, and I'm very proud of what the team achieved, like how everyone came together and managed to make a great game that, was, that is responsive, that looks grounded, that has weight, and being able to do that not just with humans, not just with Ellie, but with enemies, with dogs and with horses. We motion capture horses and dogs, <laughs> which was as well like something we've never done before. So this, this uh, game part two is, is full of new things we've, we've just taken on. And we, we knew the game was going to be big, but when we were finishing or even towards the, the middle, we were like, this is bigger, bigger than big. <laughs> this is just big and huge. And I don't think there's a word to describe that. Um, I'd love to talk about like the animations of what I've kind of internally been calling in my head, the Ren and Stimpy moments, which I don't know if you watch that cartoon where in Ren and Stimpy, there'd be like the wide shot and then they'd cut in for the close thing and it'd be like very detailed of, you know, usually a grotesque thing in Ren and Stimpy. And in Last of Us Part Two, it, it's, I mean, it's stunning. At all times, it's stunning. But those scenes when we see their fingers playing guitar on the frets, on the strings, I mean, mind blowing. And you all are not only showing the hands, I mean, it is zoomed in with the fidelity and authenticity that's just asking for people to criticize it. You know, like if there's anything wrong in it, it it's focused. Uh, the, the gamer's attention is focused on that. I'd love for you to talk about kind of how you manage those different types of perspective from an animating standpoint and, and an art standpoint of how you kind of create those hyper-focused settings and then are able to pull out from that and go into the more traditional third-person gameplay. Yeah. Um, so that's done very early on in the project. You know, we start with the trailer. So that would be the first trailer we saw where, like, Joel walks in and, like, sees Ellie playing guitar. All that tech was developed back then. That was, you know, like, how do we come up with these hands that are more real? Because hands are very, very hard to, <laughs> yeah. to rig, to model, to make it look believable, you know, the knuckles and... A squishy fingertips. So all that was developed uh, with the TD team and the cinematic team to come up with something that could be animated, that could, you know, feel like the strings are pressing against the fingertips. Um, so it's a back and forth to get that look. Uh, once the look is established, then it's easier to propagate 
uh, to different characters, uh, but definitely it took time. Um, not just the, the guitar and the, um, and, the, and the fingers, also the facial. Like we redid this time, the, the facial rig was uh, completely redone from Uncharted 4, uh, just to, to be able to be more, um, to have more fidelity. Uh, and then also like muscle deformations, like if we see the hanging scene when uh, Abby gets hanged. <laughs> Like we see like the veins and the and the face getting red. So it's like, you know, th that's very hard to do. It's, it's, um, but that grounds the player into believe that it's in this world and everything has consequences and, and feels what the players are feeling, you know, getting red, eyes bulge. So it's all a collaboration, TDs, you know, Neil's vision, cinematic team, and then feedback from the whole studio, effects, shaders, character artists. So. It's not just animation, it's all the departments together. Part one certainly had its memorable animal moments, the giraffe and, and monkeys, I think, jump out for a lot of people. And I'm curious um, what the process was for part two to make them um, a bigger part of the game, certainly with the horse and dogs. And I'm curious what that experience was like and how you brought that greater realism to the game and to those types of uh, creatures or animals. It all comes uh, back to being a hero character, uh, the horse and the, uh, and the dogs. So we thought we need to motion capture this to bring up to the realism. So we went that route and that was, that was challenging, but it was super fun. It was really interesting um, what the limitations are, having a smaller space, you know, you couldn't get to full sprint, so we had to make some tweaks to make that happen, you know. So uh, we motion capture, but we also have a very talented animation team that takes that data and needs so much adjustments. Um, and it's, 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 it gets complex and complex and more complex with, uh, with animals. Um, but I have to say that the result... I think it speaks for itself um, in uh, not just horses, but also the dogs. Um, you know, the, f the in-game facial system is something that it came together pretty late, but it adds so much to the to part two compared to any other game we've made. Like the, these, uh, the players and the NPCs and the bodies and the enemies have emotions. So they could, if they're saying a line with their smiling or like they're uh, laughing, they would communicate that on the facial expressions. And, you know, like from the dialogue uh, team where they uh, decided that they wanted to like call the enemies by name, which means, you know, that gives such a, you know, you're going to kill someone because you have to in this world, but they have a name and they have friends like you have so everything, it just makes the experience so much more robust. A moment that st has stuck with me, and the first time it happened, I was like, did I just hear what I thought I heard? Uh, and I was out um, getting my revenge, and I got my revenge on an individual, and then someone else yelled out, like, they killed Sarah! And I was like, oh, I did kill Sarah. These are people, they're not just not idle animating things that you go and take out. It's like they have a life. And even, you know, Soldier 114 
now I know is Sarah. Uh, she has someone that she's been, she cares about and that cares about her. And I killed her. Brooke? God damn it, where are you? Amir? You with me? Come on. Someone took out Amir! Someone's out there! Spread out. It's, it's incredible. It's emotionally traumatizing, <laughs> but in all the right ways. And there's a theme that I feel kind of runs through it of revenge, certainly, and violence, the cycle of violence. But I also feel like I keep hearing versions of you got to find something to fight for. You got to have a reason to, to fight. And I think in game, the way I've kind of interpreted that is you have to have a reason to live. But I also think characters in this brutal world take it literally and and fight like they are fighting. And I'm left with the feeling of, is any of that worth it? Is any of it worth it? And I don't know if I have an answer, which makes all those difficult moments prior to that more difficult. <laughs> to me, that's what the games are about. At least the, the games we make, they're they're meant to mean something. Like if, if you end up playing a game and then you finish it and then there's no emotion or there's no investment, there's no care about anything, then it's, it's to me, it, I wouldn't be satisfied. So if I'm playing a game and it evokes these reactions, it's when like, your brain start working, you want to play it, you want to keep playing to see what happens, whether it's right or wrong. You're living this journey with, in this case with Ellie, you're living this journey with these characters and that's what you're going through. This, there, there has to be conflict at some point. But we give the stealth tools to be able to avoid and make your own decisions. And like, if you don't want to do it, maybe you don't have to. Maybe you can really, really find ways around those difficult moments. And, and I understand that we try to give every character a purpose, even when we have these crowd sequences or like these this populated areas. Those are so hard because it's like, okay, how do we populate this with this amount of people that they are having a purpose in this world? And believe me, that is not an easy thing. But we want the players that play that is, yeah, you're here. And all these people, maybe they're the people you fought before. Is this the scariest thing that you've written, in your opinion? Um, gosh, I don't know. That's such a... I think everything you write should be scary for you to write. I think writers have a responsibility to write what scares them because it is historically the most honest and the, usually the things people are most hungry to hear and see and relate to. Shame dies in the light, right? Like we all want to feel seen. And if you're not saying something that feels vulnerable, I don't know, what are you doing? So yeah, I, I think this is scary. I don't know if it's the scariest. I think everything I work on is super scary. There's a lot of me in this. There's a lot of me in Ellie, in Abby, in Dina, in Lev. Um, those are my main homies. Uh, and some of those things were sort of, you know, writing about trauma can can be scary to write. You're putting it on the page, but you think about like 17-year-old me or, or the 17-year-olds that are out there now, and you're like, look, I want to give you an example of 
you know, life can be hard, but you can pick yourself back up and you're not going to be the same person you were before, but you can be somebody cool and interesting and you can enrich other people's lives and you can have a beautiful life for yourself and you can, you can grow. And so, I don't know, writers should always write shit that scares them. That's my thesis. I'm now playing the game again and looking at different parts and playing with the photo mode. It's like, how fucking lucky am I, right? Like how lucky that I get, that I have this job and I get to work with all these talented people. And like, I get to even to do this podcast and talk to you in depth about what we're trying to achieve and that people care about what we make. Um, it's pretty incredible. And like as disheartening and as some of these leaks have been, it's right, that, that negative feeling doesn't come close to the positive of like what it was like to go on this journey to make this game and come out on the other side and make something that we're so incredibly proud of. Nothing can take that away. Next time on the official The Last of Us podcast. Happy birthday, kiddo. Again, I, I would do it all over again. I love this game so much, and I love this character, and after eight years of playing this character, I, I'll go anywhere with her. For me, like, loving Ellie it was not a job. That was, like, it was easy. I'm just a girl, not a threat. I think they should be terrified of you. The official The Last of Us podcast is produced by PlayStation and Spoke Media. It's hosted by me, Christian Spicer, and written by Brigham Mosley. Our Sony PlayStation team includes Charlie Yader, Christian Cardona, and Carrie Surtees. Our Naughty Dog team includes Arnie Meyer and Scott Lowe. And our production team is Carson McCain, Kelly Kolf, Trey Jones, Reyes Mendoza, and Alicia Force. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett, who contributed additional sound design and music. Today's episode included interviews with Neil Druckmann, Hallie Gross, Anthony Newman, Kurt Margano, Almadena Soria, and Alexandria Neonaki. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>